Go ahead and grab a seat, and good evening. Uh, welcome back to the evening service here at Grace. Uh, if this is your first time, if who, this is your first time to ever be at the evening service, <gasps> welcome. Wow, there's so many of you. It's amazing. You were exhausted after that football game, huh? Sunburnt and dehydrated, probably. My wife works uh, as an emergency room nurse at the Scott and White Hospital and had a bunch of dehydrated Aggies. Hope it wasn't you. That has nothing at all to do with this evening, but just thought everyone should share in my life. Uh, welcome. Uh, if this is your first time, especially to Grace, welcome. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I'm our uh, brand new college teaching director here at our Anderson campus. Uh, we had a guy, super awesome dude by the name of Matt Morton, who's been here for about nine years in college ministry, and he just transitioned out. He's a pastor. He's, he's in a pastoral role in a different ministry, still here at Grace. Uh, so I was able to step in to his position, and so far it's been awesome. Uh, our kickoff was last week. If you were there, I'm glad you survived this, you know, this last week of class. So glad to have you guys here this evening. Uh, the 7 o'clock service I actually uh, spoke at all last spring as well. So this is like, I love, I love the evening service. It's like chill and cool, right? Like, <laughs> like you, guys, you guys are cool. You're cool, you're cool cats, right? Because we all live in the 20s, I don't know. But uh, this whole semester, uh, we have been going through, or we are going through, uh, basically this idea of culture, of why culture matters, kind of what is culture, how do we react to culture. Last week, that's what we focused on. We talked about our culture around us and kind of what's going on, and how do we react to the culture that's surrounding us. That's what we're going to be going through this whole semester, looking at different pieces of culture, whether it's marriage or money or... Uh, government or violence or whatever. We're going to talk about all these different little areas of culture and kind of how do we engage in those in different environments. This, mo- or this evening, specifically, we're looking at First Peter. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3. We're going to read it, kind of let it sink a little bit into our brains. And then it's going to take us a little while before we get back to it, but this is just going to let it kind of sit, grow, cook a little bit. Your mind is a crock pot this evening, and we're going to let it just Simmer. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13 starts off. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the gift of worship, the gift of music. God, we thank you that John and Sarah were able to lead us in this music, that they're able to lead us in through those lyrics, through those songs that they chose, but through your guidance. God, we thank you that you've been preparing our hearts, maybe for our entire lives, to hear what you would have to tell us tonight. God, we do pray that we would be open, that our hearts would be soft. And God, I pray that there is nothing that I would do to interfere with your message. God, to interfere with your word. Lord, Cut me down. God, kill the man that I am. God, destroy anything that I'm bringing to this talk. God, let this time be yours and yours alone. 
Lord, we thank you that, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, that you use this foolish preaching to spread your gospel. So God, do that this evening. God, let it sink into our hearts and change our lives. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. Uh, now, when I was in first grade, uh, it was December, so Christmas was approaching, and everyone was getting super psyched, right, because we're all like seven. So everyone's super engaged, super just like blah, on the peak level of able to concentrate in class because Christmas is coming, uh, and there's just basically nothing else that matters in our lives at that point. There was one girl in my class in particular, uh, a girl named Stacy, who was just so psyched about Christmas. She was so excited to the point where our teacher took a moment to step outside of our classroom, told us all to, you know, just chill out. She's going to be gone for a second. Teacher steps out. Stacy decides this is the opportune moment for me, Stacy, to stand up and declare to the entire class, Santa is definitely bringing me a bicycle this year. And then she just sat back down, right? (laughs) Message delivered, right? Because, unfortunately, Stacy had no kind of gauge for social norms, right? Like, she didn't really understand, because we're in first grade. I don't blame her, right? But also, unfortunately for Stacy, uh, my family never participated in the whole Santa game. Uh, they never kind of did that. Uh, in fact, my older sister, she was very fond of telling me at that time about how, hey, Jacob, did you know if you took Santa, and you take that N, and you move it out, and you put it at the end, guess what that spells, Jacob? Satan. <laughs> That's who Santa truly is, right? Well, I, mean, and I was terrified, right? And I thought, like, this is, this is terrible. So I decided, well, gosh, the only loving, kind thing for me to do in this situation is to tell Stacy the truth. And so I stood up right after her declaration and said, Stacy, Santa isn't real. And our classroom exploded, right? <laughs> And suddenly I accidentally created just this class-wide debate where everyone's standing up and tossing tables around. They're like, no, he isn't. Yes, he is, right? And people are picking sides and they're just yelling across aisles at each other and making these defenses and talking about all this different stuff and pie charts and PowerPoints and, you know, all this stuff. Like, no, he is. Like, Rudolph, right? And and they're getting up in this, just this frenzy. And it all built to this moment where Stacy kind of stepped forward, right? Because we have these two kind of like gangs, like lined up against each other. And she steps forward, she looks me right in the eye. And she says, oh, yeah? She says, well, last year, my dad heard Santa on our roof. (laughs) And he showed me the reindeer tracks in our yard. And at that point, right, everyone in the classroom's like, okay, well, you win, right? Like, (laughs) checks out, right? Your dad, so, (laughs) okay, right? But in that moment, I was not defeated. I was not done. And instead, I took this moment to just launch a little nuclear missile straight for the core of her argument. And I said, well, guess what, Stacy? Your dad, maybe he's a liar. <laughs> that was really bad. <laughs> that, that did not turn out well because uh, Stacy was like tough. So she was about to just like beat the disbelief out of me, right? Until fortunately our teacher stepped in, separated everyone, right? Made us all sit down. But there was that moment, right? I was terrified for my life because our classroom was just exploding. And, and the truth is, is that we as individuals still in this world, we are in the midst of a worldwide debate, of a worldwide yelling match, an argument where people are standing and picking sides and they're yelling about marriage, or they're yelling about sexuality. And they say this about money or they say this about government. And they make these presentations and they have all these great arguments and they're taking each other out. 
And in the midst of that debate, in the midst of that crazy mayhem, we as Christians, what we talked about last week, is that we as Christians should step into that environment and we react with three core things. We react with God's grace. We bring the truth that God loves this world, that he loves people, that he wants people brought back to himself. We bring the grace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, rose again victorious over sin, over death, so that if we put our faith in him, then we can have eternal life with the Father. We bring that grace and that love. We also bring God's Bible. We bring the word, we bring the truth that's contained in our scriptures, and we bring God's church. We bring community, unity, We bring a a sense of love amongst one another that is not seen anywhere else in the world. And when we bring those things, and that's that's how we react to our culture. That was the point of last week. But the truth is is that even in the midst of that reaction, even if you get all those things right, someone can launch a nuke straight at your core. And they're going to say, well, maybe your Bible is a liar. Maybe this book that you hold in such high esteem, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's just old words on pages that were mistranslated and blah. And what's sad is that oftentimes we as believers and we hit that we get that attack and it just we just crumble. We collapse. Because many of us don't have a defense for our Bible. A lot of us don't know how to defend our Bible. A lot of us, we carry it around, we talk about it, we trust it. But the truth is that when someone says, well, I don't really believe in that. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that's a valid, authentic source. We just, ugh. Do you have one? Do you have a defense? The good news is that this evening, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how do we defend our Bible in the midst of all that craziness, in the midst of those attacks that I promise you're going to face. If you haven't faced them yet, you will in college, I promise you. Even at Texas A&M, even at Bullen. Someone's going to attack the Bible. So how are you going to defend it? To accomplish this, we're going to kind of zoom in. We're going to look at, okay, so what are the common attacks? What's, what's kind of the general overall defense that we have? And this is based on uh, some brilliant scholars in addition to what God tells us in his word himself. We're going to look at those kind of basics. Then we're going to kind of zoom out, look at a little bit of a bigger picture, and then we're going to zoom back in, okay? Just to give you a little bit of structure. Details, big view, details once again. Right? When we look at these small pieces, when we look at the details of how people are attacking us, a lot of times, it's for a variety of reasons, right? They all basically boil down to, I don't think your Bible is authentic, right? They have a lot of reasons for that, but let's just boil it down. I don't think your Bible is authentic. And when someone brings that to uh, your mind, when someone brings that up, all you have to do is remember puppies, okay? Puppies. And in fact, I'm so excited because this evening, there happen to be puppies for sale. So we have the cutest real-life example, <laughs> Am I supposed to hold them? Uh, you hold them. Yeah, I don't know. I, I get nervous around young ones. Okay, so you just remember puppies. Just remember, did anyone name this puppy yet? Jimbo. Jim, oh, you name it. Wait, that's a person though. Oh, not named yet? We'll just call him Q. 
cutie patootie, all right? So <laughs> cutie patootie here is all you need to remember, okay? So whenever you think, when someone attacks the Word of God, all right, when someone calls into question the authenticity of your Scripture, just remember cutie patootie slash Jimbo slash name not yet given, all right? Look at that. It's so cute. You can't argue with that, right? And when I say puppies... I mean, of course, right? Prophecy, unity, power in people, indestructible events and sources. Right? This is the what you need to think of, right? Of course. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Right? But this is, this is what that is, all right? So not only thinking of cutie patootie back there and his little white patch on his neck and his nose and tongue that probably smells bad, right? But think about prophecy, unity, power in people, indestructible events and sources, Anytime you're analyzing an ancient text, this is just, this goes across the board for all of the world. Anytime you're analyzing a text, you look at two main categories of evidence. You look at internal evidence, you look at external evidence. Okay, what I've basically done here is I've compiled for you three core internal evidence and then three core external. Okay, we're just going to unpack these real quick just to give you an idea, just to give you some arrows in your quiver. Just to give you a shield, something that you know you got a basic defense ready when someone attacks the Bible. When you see, when you think of prophecy, okay, puppies, think of prophecy, what that means is that basically internal evidence of the Bible, okay, one of them is that our Bible is filled with hundreds of detailed prophecies. That is incredibly rare. That does not happen in normal literature. Hundreds of detailed prophecies. There are over 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, okay? Over 300 alone about one man. There are other prophecies about cities, about nations, about governments, about uh, people or world events or nature. There's all these types of prophecies that we see in our Bible. And they all, well, not all of them quite yet, but most of them have been fulfilled. That's what's incredible. As you look at these over 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament, and you look in the New Testament— and you can see, oh, he fulfilled that one, and 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 that one. That's amazing. That's an incredible piece of evidence in our Bible. It's made especially incredible by the you. It's made incredibly special by the unity that's in our Bible. You might not think about your Bible in this way, but the reality is, is that your Bible is 66 books written across three continents in three different languages over a span of about 1,500 years, by over 40 authors. That's incredible that all of those things happened. And you would think when you get all those kind of pieces together, you would have this mess of a work. But instead, no, you see a unified work. You see a unified scripture. You see a scripture that is complete with one overall theme, one overall message It has themes and motifs, things that are just kind of weaving themselves in and out of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's incredible that that happened. It points to a divine author. It points really to one author. That's what it does. We see a Bible that does not contradict itself. We see a Bible that is unified. It's incredible internal evidence. One of my favorites is this last one, the power that we see in people, right? This is a little bit more subjective. I'm not going to hold up in a scientific debate. It's harder to quantify. But most of us, hopefully all of us, have seen the power that is contained in God's Scripture. We've seen the power in people's lives. Hopefully all of us have either experienced or seen or at least heard about 
radical life change that came about because someone just read their Bible, right, or heard a verse. That's amazing. That's incredible evidence. When we look at ancient times, we see these early Christians rising up, being oppressed and pushed down, killed and slaughtered and martyred. And yet, they stuck to their guns. They were willing to die. They were willing to live for Scripture. They were also willing to die for their Scripture, for the, for the parchment in their houses. They are willing to die for that. That's incredible. And that does not happen with other books. We see incredible power. We also, in addition to these internal pieces, we see some external ones. We see that the Bible is in and itself indestructible. What I mean by that is we look through time and history and we realize that the Bible is the most attacked book ever. Ever. Nothing else comes close to the amount of oppression and the attempts to just destroy it or get rid of it. Ancient Roman emperors, just kings throughout time, modern uh, communist dictators. People hate the Bible because it claims to be the word of God. Right? So people hate that. They hate it. And they want to get rid of it. And time and time again, it doesn't work. Right? They can't get rid of it. Instead, a lot of times when you see this oppression, when you see people just really cracking down, that's when the Bible flourishes and explodes and copies multiply within nations. That's amazing. That's incredible evidence towards our scripture. We also see our scripture, all those prophecies, in addition to having those prophecies, they also have just detailed records, right? There's all those like boring genealogies that you see in your Bible. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't care if that was King Homopadup. You know, like that's not, I don't care about that, right? I don't care if his son was Haidabadah. You know, like that's not, it's not why I'm reading this, right? But the fact that our Bible has that is incredible because scholars and historians and archaeologists time and time again have thought, oh man, if I can just uh, disprove the Bible by finding a conflicting record, right? So they try to find these like ancient, you know, record books and logs and writings on walls. And time and time again, as they're seeking to disprove scripture by saying, oh, he wasn't really the king during that time. They find the old record book and they're like, okay, what does it say? dang it, he was the king during that time, right? And it's, they get so frustrated. It's hilarious because we see time and time again where the Bible is verified by these external sources. When the Bible says that this city was right over here and that it fell in this year, archaeologists go there and they're like, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't, no, it, dang it, it was, right? Like they're so, ah, uh, because they find, yeah, that city was there and it does look like it was destroyed right about that time because our Bible is unafraid to make those records because it's true. You don't see those records in other books. You don't see fulfilled prophecies in other books. One of my favorite ones of the external is this last one, the sources. This is incredible uh, to me, especially because I've been in seminary and I've been taking these uh, Greek courses and part of studying Greek is you learn to analyze the uh, validity of different works. And you do that by looking at the number of manuscripts that there are and kind of how those manuscripts align, where they came from, how far apart they were from when it was originally written. And basically what happens is that when we look at the Bible in that way, again, just the, this is a secular way of studying ancient literature. When we look at the Bible in this way, it's amazing. Uh, you see this list, all right? And there's some names on here that you might recognize, right? Like Plato, heard of that guy, heard of Caesar, right? You've heard of Aristotle. Uh, if you're really hardcore, you've heard of like, Euripides, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I know that guy, right? or whatever. And so, uh, but the classic example that everyone always uses is Homer. Okay, everyone talks about how Homer wrote the Iliad, that kind of stuff. 
this is kind of the, the, one of the most verified works in secular culture, okay, one of the ones that we have the most copies of, right? You see, uh, basically on this chart, just to give you an explanation, uh, that first number right there next to the name, uh, that is when it was probably originally written. So people say, okay, Homer wrote uh, probably about 900 BC. But our earliest copy of his writing is in the next column, okay, 400 BC, right? And if you hate math, then that third column is just for you. That says there was about 500 years right there, okay? Like if you don't want to subtract, 500 years, right? From the original writing to the earliest dated manuscript that we have, right? 500 years. And then we have in total about 643 copies. And that's amazing, right? Especially you compare that to the top. You look at Plato, right? Who everyone's like, yeah, Plato is smart or whatever. We have seven, right? And they have 1,200-year span between when he probably wrote it and the earliest copy, right? But people are like, Plato, yeah, cool, accept it. That being said, bottom of the chart, New Testament. Written right around the first century, towards the end of the first century, A.D., right? Makes sense because Jesus died in the beginning of the first century, right? So then everyone kind of wrote these books after that. And our earliest copy on this chart is marked right around 130 AD, right the beginning of the second century. Uh, this chart's actually a little bit old. Within the last, like, two years, there's a guy named Dan Wallace from Dallas Theological Seminary, incredibly brilliant scholar, Greek scholar, and he actually discovered, cataloged, and is soon to be publishing a fragment from the Gospel of Mark that he discovered from the first century. First century, right? So, like, within at least like maximum of like 50 years of when it was written. That's amazing, <laughs> okay? Next closest, Iliad, 500 years. We have one 50. Not only that, but you might have noticed number of copies, 5,600? What? Right? Like I don't even know how many times seven goes into that, but it's a lot, right? Like that's, that's many, many times the number seven. 5,600 copies, just Greek this isn't even counting other uh, translations that popped up right around the same time in other languages. 5,600 copies. Greek. This is incredible. This is uh, almost an embarrassment of wealth. This is incredible what we have. Evidence pointing towards the validity of our scripture. And our temptation, a lot of times, my temptation when I first learned about these things uh, was I thought, wow, like, this is great. Can't wait to go argue everyone into being a Christian, right? Like, you're like, okay, I got this information. I got, you know, like, I'm ready. Like, I got some, you know, pup over here and some puppies or, or whatever. You know, like, I'm ready, right? I got puppies. I'm going to go out there and just pull them out. And you can't disagree with Smooky Dookie or whatever. I don't know. I forgot what we named him. Cutie Patootie, right? There we go. You can't disagree with Cutie Patootie, right? We got puppies on our side. We can defend this Bible. And the truth is that a lot of times people try that. They go out and they're like, hey, look at all this evidence that I have for our Bible and da, da 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 And in fact, there was a very, very brilliant man who went to a very, very brilliant college campus. And he was just doing evangelism for years. Went to an Ivy League school here in America where he would just go up to students and talk with them. You have debates, you go to their like clubs and all this different stuff. And you would talk with them about this Bible, about why, he, why it's reasonable to believe that the Bible is true, is in fact God's word. He said time and time again, these students, they would come up with these accusations or these reasons for not believing. They'd be like, well, this and this and this, and I doubt this. And, uh. and they would go into these big heated arguments and it would last just a really long time. And he learned the best strategy was not in fact to just go through this whole long process. Instead, at the very beginning of those conversations, he would ask them, okay, let's, Let's just say that I answered every single question that you have. Let's just 
pretend, let's just hypothetically, let's say that I answered to your complete satisfaction every issue, every concern you have about the authenticity of Scripture. Then, would you believe? Would you put your faith in Christ? If I got rid of all of your concerns about whether or not the Bible is true, would you believe? He said 95% of the time, the person would say, no. No. Because the truth is, is that most people, even when they are attacking our Scripture, it's not that they don't trust the authenticity. That's not the only reason they're attacking it. They're attacking our Scripture. They're attacking the authenticity because they really, they don't trust the author. It's not just the authentic nature of it. It's they don't trust who wrote it. Because when you look at our culture, what you realize is that really you can take almost all conflicts, right? Vast majority of conflicts, and you can really boil them down to one core issue. That issue is who's the pooba. Okay. What I mean by that is pooba, in case you didn't know, this is a term from the late 1800s that for some reason some of my high school friends and I really loved. I don't know why, right? But the term Puba, uh, we used it to, that's what we called one of our youth leaders back in high school. Uh, because Puba, what it means is high lord of everything, or lord high of everything, right? It's just this grand, grand term where you describe, I'm lord high of all things. And we had this youth leader uh, who loved us, and yet we were just the worst people back towards him, because that's how high schoolers roll, you know? And so we decided, you know what? You want to be an authority in our lives? Okay, we're just going to mock you by calling you Pooba. But it really worked in his favor, because we would have these disagreements and these conflicts where we'd kind of discuss about, like, you know, stop being disruptive in this way, you need to stop doing this or that. And it would really boil down to, we were like, well, I don't think that's right. And But it would get back down to this one moment where we'd say, well, but you're the Pooba. You to Puba, right? And we would realize that. And when we realized that, we're like, all right, you know, fair enough. Like, I'll give it a shout. Give whatever you said a try, right? Because you are the Puba. And the truth is that our culture, man, we, we really struggle. We really struggle with that question. And it's really the root cause, the core issue of many of our conflicts. This summer, you probably noticed that Johnny Manziel got into a little bit of trouble with the NCAA over signing autographs, right? People were saying, you signed all these autographs. And he was like, no, I didn't pics or it didn't happen, right? And everyone's like going back and forth. They're getting really upset. And ESPN just talks about it all the time, every day. And we eventually came to this point where the NCAA said, no, you know, we can't prove all these different things, but you have to sit out the first half of the first game, right? Which is why yesterday, he was just sitting, Johnny Manziel was just sitting on the bench for the first half of the whole game against Rice, right? Because of what it really came down to is it wasn't about autographs. It wasn't really about like who should be signing what. It was really about is who's the pooba. Who has the right to decide where, whether or not players can earn money for themselves, right, based on their namesake? How, who's to decide whether or not players can sign things? Who, who's the pooba? Who's lord of that realm? And the NCAA said, we are. Sit on that bench. So Johnny sat until the second half, right? And then he got up. He said, I am. Touchdown. Right? And that's, <laughs> that's kind of how he rolled. And he, like, mocks people on the field. It was really bad. I don't know. But... We have this whole moment where we see, okay, what it's really about right there, though, it's not about autographs. It's about who's the pooba. This is this question that drives our society, drives our world. 
more, a little bit farther back, man, we've been having all these conflicts. We've been having all this hubbub and debate about marriage and who's it be between and where does it belong and what rights do you have and where do these things fit together? You look back even farther than that and everyone's really talking about like, what about abortion? Who has the right to those babies? What, who can decide what, what's right and what's wrong? Who can decide where sex belongs? Is it in a marriage? Is it out of a marriage? What, what's going on? And, and within all of those conflicts, man, it's not about those issues per se. What it's really about is who's the puba? Who is the Lord high of that realm? Who decides what is right and what is wrong when it comes to those issues? That's the core. And anytime a Christian is in the middle of that conflict, if the Christian is walking with the Lord, if the Christian is truly reacting with God's grace, with God's Bible, with God's church, if I'm reacting in that way, my natural reaction answer to that question, who's the puba? I'm going to say, God. God is Lord of everything. But you see, our culture at large, our world that we live in, their natural reaction to that question? Me. I'm Lord. I'm Lord of everything. I'm the Puba. So we're always going to have that conflict. This is always going to pop up. We're going to consistently see these people bring up these same issues over and over and over again. And what's so hilarious about it is that our culture dresses it up in so many different ways. It's awesome. I love it. It's so sneaky. You see, our culture, we love tolerance, right? That's the kind of the big key, like ultimate, you've arrived if you are tolerant of all, right? If you're a relativist, if you're willing to say that you can do what you want and you can do what you want, no lines, right? That's what it really boils down to. There, no one should be able to draw lines for other people, right? That should not exist. And so because of that, recently there was legislation, there were some court cases, in a couple different states where there was a kid, one in particular, there was a kid about six years old who decided, you know what, I know that I was born with this certain kind of anatomy, but I'm going to decide that I want to be identified as a girl. Even though I'm built as a boy, I want to identify as a girl. Right? And the parents were like, yes. Right? And everyone was like, yeah, that's awesome. And the school that he went to was even like, okay, that's fine, you know, whatever. But they said, they made one little peace. They were one little asterisk, right? They said, but you've still got to go to the boys' bathroom, right? They said, you've got to still go to the boys' locker room, right? We want to just set this precedent now. You're built that way, so you need to go to those areas, right? That's, but whatever else you want to do, whatever. Just use the boys' bathroom, and people freaked out, and the parents sued the school, and the parents won, where the school had to say, okay, fine, No, because the parents said, how dare you try to limit his sexuality? How dare you try to limit his choices? How dare you try to draw lines about our kid? In fact, California, they saw that and they were like, whoa, hey, we're going to just jump the gun on this one. Go ahead and get a step above or a step ahead of anybody else. And they're going to say, you know what? We passed a statewide legislative law that says every government institution, you got to do that exact same thing. You've got to be willing to allow anyone to use whatever facility they identify with. It doesn't matter what they look like. It's whatever they identify with. That's what they use. Because how dare you try to draw lines around someone? It's not tolerant. More recently, you probably heard about this sweet girl named Miley Cyrus performing at the MTV VMAs, right? 
you had to put forth effort not to see that performance. It was incredible, like how widespread it was. It was amazing, right? You, you had to consciously decide, I will not watch it, and then just like walk around with blinders all week if you weren't going to see it, because it was everywhere, because everyone was losing their minds, right? Rightly so. It was really insane. But everyone's just flipping out, and there's people writing articles, and they're on like legitimate talk shows, like CNN, like talking about it. They're like, yeah, I don't know what what's Billy Ray thinking? You know, like what's going on, right? And there's all these blog posts and there's Facebook posts, right? They were like getting like super liked and all that stuff. They were spreading around. People were like, don't let your daughter be Miley, right? And like, oh, what would Oliver and Lily think, Hannah Montana? You know, like everyone's like freaking out. Everyone's just going nuts. And they're saying, How, why were they freaking out? Because they said, why? Why would she do that? So she can't do that. So they can't, you can't express your sexuality in that way. You, you can't do that. You, you've crossed a line. In the midst of a culture that claims that there are no lines, people decided, no, there's, there's this line. You can't draw lines over there, but there's still this line, right? And that's why tolerance, man, it breaks down. Relativism, it does not make sense. It always fails. Because everyone has a line. Everyone draws one somewhere. And there are philosophical arguments, right, on the counter side of this. This, has been going, this debate has been going on for hundreds of years. But the truth is, is that, man, everyone's got a line. It's just the way it works. Not only that, but if I'm trying to tell you that you can't draw lines, I'm basically forbidding you to forbid anyone else from doing stuff. It doesn't make sense. But you know what? You can tell that to someone. You can present that to our culture at large. And they don't care. They really don't. Because it's not about tolerance. It's not about relativism. It's about who's the Lord high of everything. Who's the puba? Who has the right to decide this or that? Because when people are pushing toleration, they're saying, look, you can't limit your son or, that, or your daughter in that way. Why? Because I don't think you should. You can't vote in that way because I don't think you should vote that way. I, I, people, you should have this right. You should have a right to this. Or you should have a right to that. Why? Well, because I think you should. Because I'm the puba. Because I'm the Lord high of everything. And who are you to challenge me? How dare you try to draw lines around me as I'm drawing lines around everyone else? See, our culture, man, it, it, does not, <laughs> it does not like our author of our scripture. It doesn't care about the authenticity. It cares about the author. Our culture does not want to buy into that. And this is exactly why Peter wrote, in chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness, respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, Peter's telling us, the Bible tells us repeatedly what we're going to look at in a second, is that, look, as people are attacking you, 
They're attacking your belief. As you prepare a defense for that, right, you need to have a defense, right? Keep the puppies in your back pocket, like, right? Have that. Know that. Have a defense. Be able to present the gospel clearly in 30 seconds. Be able to give a testimony of what God's done in your life. Pull up that puppies. But Peter doesn't go into all that. Instead, what does he focus on? He doesn't focus on the what you say. He focuses on how do you say it. Because that's what's really effective. That's why he focuses on this idea of gentleness, respect, this good conscience. That's why we see over and over again that the Bible is pushing us. Don't just worry about how, what you defend to people. Instead, worry about how are you doing it. The best way to defend God as the author, the best way to defend God as the Puba, as the Lord High of everything, the best way to do that, the best way to defend him is to demonstrate what his authority looks like in your life. That's why we see in 1 John, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says obedience should be prevalent among us. That's why Jesus himself said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The ultimate commandment, love one another. And as people look at us and they see this obedience and they see this love, That itself is a defense that says God is the Lord of all. God is the authority. He has the right to rule. This should be our focus, man. This should be our heartbeat. This should be what we're all about. This gentleness and this respect. This is exactly why there was a second century philosopher, guys, a guy named Athenagoras, who's awesome. And he wrote, he was an apologist, and he defended the faith because second century Roman Empire was very similar to our current American one. The Roman Empire was rich in intolerance and relativism. They said, look, you can do whatever you want in any country you want. You can do anything, whatever. Just pay your taxes and admit that Caesar is one of our gods, okay? Just, that's all you do. Everything else, whatever you want. Super tolerant. This is crazy. And in the midst of that, there was a lot of misunderstanding. People thought Christians were popping up, and they were, people thought they were a cult, and they were like, well, what do they believe? They're, people thought that they were practicing incest and cannibalism and all this like, really strange stuff. And so Athenagoras decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and write an open letter to the emperor. I'm going to write to him, and I'm going to explain what Christianity is. I'm going to make a defense for my people. And this is what he says. This is a long letter. I just pulled out three choice quotes where he says, what then are those teachings in which we are brought up? Right? What do Christians really believe? This guy sums it up. He quotes Luke and then he quotes Matthew. He says, I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that, per- that curse you. Pray for them that persecute you, that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He goes on describing these other religions. He says, who of those other religions have so purged their souls as instead of hating their enemies to love them? Instead of speaking ill of those who have reviled them to bless them? To pray for those who plot against their lives? He says, no one else does that. He says, this is Christians alone live this way, follow these teachings. That's why he sums it up when he says, but among us, among believers, you will find uneducated persons and artisans and old women who if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of its truth. They do not rehearse speeches, but they exhibit good works. 
When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to the law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. Athenagoras, Peter, John, Jesus, all said the exact same thing. If you really want to make a defense for God's work in this world, if you want to make a defense saying that God does have the right to rule, to be the Lord high of everything, then live as if he is the authority of your life. Live with that gentleness and with that respect. Live in that obedience and in that love. Does this say that all Christians will always be obedient and always be loving? No, we know that is not true. We do not set obedience ahead of ourselves as our goal in order to obtain our salvation or to somehow prove our salvation. Instead, we put obedience ahead of ourselves to authenticate God, to defend him as the true authority of this world. That's why we obey. If you're a Christian, you're a hypocrite. That's just how it happens. That's just how it goes. You're going to mess up. You're going to fall. But as sure as I am of the fact that you're going to fail, I'm more so sure that our God will pick you up, dust you off, put you back on the right track. Because once you're a believer, you are a child of his. You're an adopted son. You're an adopted daughter. You're a child of grace. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're a child of grace love. God loves you. If you put your faith in his son, you are one of his. He's never going to let go. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, he's got you. So let's live like it. Let's make that our passion. Let's make that our goal. So as we think about, man, where, where do these things play out? I want to encourage you, challenge you. Think about where does your defense need to be stronger? Where are the you know, weak spots in your armor, in your walls? Is it that one roommate who just, oh, it's so hard to love because he's an idiot, right? Is it that one family member that, oh, you can't respect him because he wears those shirts on Thursdays? I don't know, something weird. <laughs> one of those weird dad things that just frustrates you. I don't know, right? What, who, where is your defense lacking, right? Where is your defense weak? Where do you need to step it up? Where does your love, where does your obedience really need to come out? Is it in that one classroom? Is it in that one organization? Is it in that one friend group? Where is it? Identify it. Work at that. Ask God to empower you to fill in those gaps. And as you're doing that, I would also challenge you, if you believe that God's word is God's word, if you believe that God is the author of Scripture and that he is the authority of all of creation, are you reading your Bible? Are you studying those words that came from God? Are you memorizing them? Are you immersing yourself in them? That's why these first few weeks here at Grace, we're constantly pushing small groups. Small group, small group, small group, right? And it's not just because we love having people in small groups. It's because we want you to know your Bible. That's what all of our small groups do, is they study the Bible. Because we want you to be immersed in those words. We want you to study God's scripture and surround yourself with like-minded believers. People that can encourage you, keep you accountable. Because as you do those things, you push each other to seek God in ways that you can't do on your own. So you're going to have some opportunities to sign up today, this evening. You're going to have people standing around, ready to get you signed up for small groups. There are little pamphlets on your chair. You can sign up for small groups. Do it. Or at least join one with another organization or with another church. Join one somewhere, soon. 
Because this is what we're called to do. This is why we're here. So as we worship just a little bit more, I challenge you, think about those things. Where can your defense be stronger? Where is the small group that you should be joining? Ask God to reveal those things to you. Let's pray. Lord, God, we see that you are stronger than all of the, this world has to offer. God, we see that you are greater than every challenge in our lives. God, we just pray that we would continually run to you. God, we would continually seek you. That God, that, that wouldn't just be knowledge that we keep in our heads, but Lord, it would be something that sinks into our hearts, that changes our lives. That God, we would speak differently because we belong to you. That God, we would act differently because we belong to you. Lord, we just pray that you would equip us to defend you as the Lord of all. God, we thank you that you don't need us, but yet you choose, you graciously allow us to defend you in these ways. So God, let us be faithful and diligent to learn and to grow, to have puppies, God. If you would take this moment, and like I said, just, just ask God where... Where should you be focusing your defense? Ask them, where is that small group that you should be joining this semester? Because I promise you there is one. But where is it? Ask him those things. Lord, we just love the fact that you've brought us here. God, we love the fact that you have put us in this place. God, with different challenges and opportunities and joys and sorrows. God, we just... We stand in awe of the fact that you are Lord of all, that, God, you have orchestrated all of these things. So, God, as we stand in awe of that fact, Lord, let us pursue you. God, point others to you. God, live for you. God, let this song be our, our cry daily, that you are stronger, that, God, you are Lord. God, we thank you that being above all things, being so powerful that you've sent your son to die for us. God, that is amazing that you came to this level for our sake. So Lord, remind us of that. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. All right, now like I said, if you want to sign up for a small group, we've got a table back there. There are people with stickers on their chests that are yellow and they can answer all of your questions about any small group we have. Other than that, we'll see you guys later.